Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're not sure how the state decides on Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger's defense team claims they're not entirely clear how law enforcement identified him as their suspect in the Idaho Four murders. But prosecutors say the defense has the answer in their hands. So what is it? I'm Anjanette Levy. It's Wednesday, and this is Crime Fix. Brian Koberger was arrested and charged with the murders of those four University of Idaho students nearly seven weeks after they were found stabbed to death in their house near campus. We know Koberger drove a white Hyundai Elantra that police said was seen at the house on King Road. And the lead detective said Koberger's DNA was found on the snap of the K-Bar knife sheath left next to Maddie Mogan's body. But how did police get to him? This is what Brian Koberger's lawyer, Ann Taylor, said last month during a hearing. And the clear picture that I'm concerned about is the state's pathway of how Brian Koberger comes to their attention and is identified. I've read that PC affidavit over and over and over again, and I'm not sure. Now, in a filing this week, prosecutors essentially said the defense should already know the answer to that question. They wrote, this information can be obtained from the TUI letter from the FBI to the state dated November 28, 2023. So what's this TUI letter and what does it say? Bobby Chacon is a retired FBI agent and also a lawyer. Bobby, what is a TUI letter? I think the best way people could think about a TUI letter, it's kind of like a subpoena. Um, it is a request for documents or witnesses, usually a witness, of a, of a government agency in cases where that agency isn't a party to the proceeding. So if, if they're a party, then you go through the, the, the subpoena route. But it's very similar to a subpoena. It's a request for documents and or a witness to be provided in the case. So the FBI, according to the prosecution, sends this TUI letter, which should answer this question about how Brian Koberger became the suspect in this murder case on November 28th. That's uh, 15 days after the homicide. So I know I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but what on earth could that letter have said and why is the FBI sending it to the prosecution? I, I think what's what's actually, and I read the filing, I think there's a little bit of a uh, a mistake on the prosecution that they say the, the FBI TUI letter, I think what they mean is the response, the FBI's response to the TUI letter. I believe what happened is here, the prosecution probably sent a TUI letter to the FBI and the FBI responded to that. The FBI would not send out a TUI letter. That's not the purpose of it. You wouldn't do that. But they responded to a TUI letter that was probably sent to them by the prosecution because the prosecution was probably trying to line up all of its information that it may need 
later down the case. Again, it's speculation, like you said, but they wanted to know how Brian Kohlberger was initially identified, initially put on their radar. And the FBI had something to do with that, we know through genealogy and things like that. We know the DNA. And so they probably were trying to gather in the in the early stages of the investigation all the information that they felt they might need later on. Um, and part of that was how the FBI assisted Idaho in identifying this individual. So that was going to be my next question, because we, we know they found Brian Koberger's DNA, a single source male, male DNA profile on the snap of that K-Bar knife sheath that was found next to and kind of underneath Maddie Mogan's body, um, horrifically. And, you know, it wasn't in CODIS. It wasn't in the FBI database of known felons. So then they had to do some work. So the FBI goes to work with Othram and they start building the trees and do, 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 do. They do what they do. And that's how, in my mind, they would have figured out who the suspect was. So was it possibly about the genetic genealogy information in this TUI letter? Obviously asking you to speculate again. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, in my opinion, that's what it was about. It was about not only specifically to this case, but in general, how this system works, how you did what you did. I think that's what they were trying to gather. So they have those answers down the road as it moved forward. But I think you're right. And again, I think it's important in the timeline of things to not say you know, they found Brian Koberger's DNA on that night sheet. What they found was DNA on the night sheet. And then they did that whole thing that you just explained, that whole process, because it is a process and it is, and, and you have to go back. And what, let's remember what genealogy does. It doesn't give us a suspect. It gives us a grouping of suspects, right? And then we have to go out and do further investigation on the individuals that are in that pool of suspects. So it narrows it down and then we look at each individual and then you go and try to get that individual's DNA surreptitiously as they did here and then match it directly. So there's there's a couple of steps in the process. So probably on November 28th, 15 days after the homicides, they know they've got this unknown male DNA profile. The feds are involved in this, the FBI is involved, because the thing is just a monster of a case happening in this little town in Idaho with the Idaho State Police involved. They know that they've got some work to do. They're maybe getting a pool of suspects from the genetic genealogy work that's done. And then the next big date in this case um, is November 29th, because they also know that a white Hyundai Elantra, according to the police, was also seen uh, at the crime scene. and. The FBI was involved in identifying that vehicle. And then, you know, they had asked, unbeknownst to all of us at the time, they had asked law enforcement to be on the lookout for this white Hyundai Elantra. We have two Washington State University police officers putting a query in on November 29th, the day after this letter. And they see, oh, this Brian Koberger, uh, this student drives a white Hyundai Elantra. I kind of gathered from reading all the documents that that kind of information might have gotten passed along, but put into a pile of other information for a time. Um, so, you know, then there are a number of days that pass on December 7th, like eight days later. That is when the cops release the vi the images of the Hyundai Elantra and they're like, we need information about this. So to me, Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that they made the connection with Koberger and the Elantra back then on November 29th, if they're asking for information from the public about it on December 7th. 
Well, I think you're right. And I think that people have to understand that, you know, it's 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 easy for us to look at an investigation after the fact and see moving in a linear direction. But oftentimes it's not, especially that early on in investigation. So I think what was happening is several things were happening at once. They were doing a couple of different things. The pool over here with the DNA is starting to develop. The video is starting to be enhanced. And, and you have different teams within the investigation doing different things. And then ultimately it all gets married up together. But I think in those early days, you had a couple of different things going on. I think the prosecution sent that to we letter to the FBI saying, you know, tell us exactly how you're doing this because we're the ones that are going to be responsible for prosecuting this as a murder case in our state. And we want to make sure that everything you're doing is going to marry up with what, you know, is proper in our our laws in, in the state and, and things like that. So they wanted to get that information from the FBI. What is your investigative genealogy process? How does that work? Even if it's not you know specific to this case, how are you doing it? And the prosecutors want to be comfortable with that. And at the same time, like you said, Another team is working on that DNA off that knife sheath. Another team is working on the video of that Elantra and enhancing it. And so all of these things, and then down the road, it gets married up. But I think initially, I think what we're seeing now is several things happening at one time, but they're all put together later on. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Yeah. And it's important to note, too, when they first asked for the information about the Hyundai, they were saying 2011 to 2013. Then later they look back and the FBI analyst says, well, it could have been 2011 to 2016. Koberger drove a 2015. Uh, so let's move on to our next significant date. December 7th, as I said, they asked the public for help. Here is a white Hyundai Elantra. This is what it looks like. Please call us if you know of white Hyundai Elantras in the area, et cetera. And then like a week later or so, Brian Koberger and his dad are driving cross country. They get pulled over twice in Indiana within, you know, several minutes of each other of these two traffic stops. The FBI says, look, we were not monitoring him at that time. Um, so he was not under surveillance. These were kind of interdiction drugs, traffic stops, because he was obviously a bad driver. The guy is always getting pulled over. Um, so, you know, even then it seems like all those pieces had not yet quite come together, um, even on that date. So would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing in parts of the investigation put together and parts not yet, but ultimately we see them put together, but we just don't know exactly when, because sometimes that's not even documented. You're just talking about it in within the case uh, team itself and saying this and that and then and then you go back and document but um yeah i think what we were doing is we're seeing the evolution of of the investigation um again i i sometimes have you know i have differing thoughts on those stops on whether the, they were coordinated i don't think they were coordinated i think as the fbi said i just think it's you know it's just really suspiciously coincidental um uh, that two so close together I think one was probably orchestrated, possibly not by the FBI, but um, uh, but one probably wasn't. Uh, the second one probably wasn't. Um, but but yeah, I think that I think multiple things were happening. It's always easier to look back and to impugn 
the investigation with all the knowledge they had, you know, ultimately, or tying them together ultimately, even if they had them, they hadn't connected those dots yet. We'll get back to Crime Fix in just a sec, but first I want to tell you about our sponsor, Morgan & Morgan. It's the largest personal injury law firm in the United States, and they make submitting a claim really easy. You can do it using just your cell phone. When you're seriously hurt, your injury could be worth millions. And when you're fighting a big insurance company, you need a big law firm like Morgan & Morgan to fight for you and to protect your rights. Morgan & Morgan does not settle for lowball offers. Just in the last couple of months, Morgan & Morgan has had some really big verdicts. In Florida, they got one for $12 million. It was 34 times higher than the highest insurance offer. In Philly, Morgan & Morgan won a $26 million verdict. It was 40 times the highest insurance offer. And in New York, they won a $6.8 million verdict. That was a whopping 25 times the highest offer. There are no upfront fees. It's free to submit a claim and you only pay if you win. Log on to www.forthepeople.com slash crime fix or click on the link in the description to submit a claim. My reading of this, the next important date, according to the probable cause affidavit, December 23rd. Okay, that is eight days after the Indiana traffic stops and seven days before Brian Koberger's arrested. Uh, Brett Payne, the lead detective on this case, requests and receives Brian Koberger's cell phone records. Bobby, wouldn't that kind of probably be the day or wouldn't you say like in the days before that or maybe the day before that they had narrowed down maybe that genetic genealogy information and they see, oh, my God, this guy drives a white Elantra. They get his phone records and then surveillance begins because they don't start digging through his trash his dad's trash in the Poconos for several more days. Yeah, I think I think absolutely. And 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 yeah, you're right. I think that that's exactly what happened. And I think that on your prior question, then they go back and they say, oh, this guy was stopped twice. And then they go back and see the video and everything starts to come together. But I think, again, like we said, he might have been in a larger pool of suspects. And then with each little piece that you're talking about, he get that pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So you might have even been looking at somebody else at the same time and then ruled them out for whatever reason, but that pool just gets smaller and smaller. We're always accused by the defense of focusing in on one person too quickly. It's always the accusation, but it's not always the case because a lot of times you're looking at somebody else here or there and you know, and different people in that pool has a different probability. Maybe Koberger was higher, you know, maybe, you know, and then, but there were probably some other people that were lower and then they get dropped off the list because of whatever reason, alibis or whatever. And, and I think that all of the steps you're outlining here in this timeline are those steps that move Brian Koberger higher and higher and higher on that list. Yeah, it just seems Until- like to me, like they had, they had these little pieces kind of floating around in the investigation, um, but it doesn't all kind of, congeal and come together until around maybe December 23rd. And that's when they start, you know, they, the surveillance starts in Pennsylvania and then they really move in and things really start to heat up. So um, that's kind of my reading of all of it. I, I'm kind of confused as why as to why the defense is so confused about how their guy was identified, um, because this is my reading of it but they also have 51 terabytes of information to go through. That's a lot. So uh, Bobby Chacon, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, people should remember too that court is not going to entertain itself with how Brian Carberger was brought before it. Um, that could be an issue for another court. It could be issue for a civil proceeding. But generally, a criminal court that is uh, looking at criminal charges, its job and that judge is looking at it, did this defendant do the crimes he's charged with? How he got in front of the court is generally something the court will not look at. Um, again, false arrest, false imprisonment, all of that stuff is civil proceedings or proceedings for another uh, court. Um, but, th but this court will not probably entertain issues of how his his own the only issue is his guilt or innocence on the charges that he's facing not how he was brought before this particular court i think the defense personally is looking for a way to possibly uh, file a motion to suppress some evidence they're looking for anything and a thread to pull on perhaps that's my my view of it what do you think Sure, and and that's their job, right? That that's their job of to be. Of course, to be it's a, totally to, their job. There's nothing wrong with that. I know people like tend to hate on defense attorneys, but that's literally their job. They wouldn't be doing their job uh, if if they didn't be aggressive in their defense of their client. Um, no matter how dastardly we think this guy is, um, they still have a job to do. They're going to do it. Um, and I've always faced that challenge willingly and and gladly face that challenge when I had cases with prosecutors going to trial. Um, it's not something that, that you fear. It's something that's part of the system and, and, and should be, you know, should be applauded. Bobby Chacon, thank you so much as always for coming on. We appreciate it. Have me. And that's it for Crime Fix on this Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. I'm Anjanette Levy. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night. You can download Crime Fix on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you get your favorite podcasts and new episodes post each weeknight at 6 Eastern time on Law & Crime's YouTube channel. Daniel Camacho does our video editing. Our head of social media is Bobby Zoki. Our senior director of social media is Vanessa Vine. Savannah Williamson is one of our producers. Diane Kay and Alyssa Fisher book our guests. And Brad Maybe is our audio editor.